Welcome to the Optimal Body Podcast. I'm Doc Jen. And I'm Dr. Dom. And we are doctors of physical therapy, bringing you the body tips and physical therapy pearls of wisdom to help you begin to understand your body, relieve your pains and restrictions, and answer your questions. Along with expert guests, our goal of the Optimal Body Podcast is really to help you discover what optimal means within your own body. Let's dive in. So excited to dive into this interview, especially because I don't know if I've ever learned more about the historical context of yoga and really how you can apply the practice throughout different stages of life. But before we jump in, I really want to give a shout out to one of our sponsors, Vivo Barefoot Shoes. And you all know by now how much Jen and I love barefoot shoes. One of my problems, however, has been going to Minnesota in the winter and not having a pair of shoes that can really keep my foot warm. Vivo has you covered. They have their new Tracker Winter Boots and Gobi Winterized Boots to really still give you that barefoot feel, still look great, and also keep your foot warm. I've always had this problem. I love my barefoot shoes, but they haven't really kept my feet warm in the winter, and now I'm covered. If you don't have snow or cold where you are for the winter, Vivo still has styles for every type of weather, every type of activity. So go down to the link in the show notes, check them out, and make sure you use our special code TOB at checkout to get 15% off. I'm so excited to welcome my good friend, Brett Larkin, on the podcast, who's a founder of Uplifted Yoga and the author of a new book, Yoga Life, Habits, Poses, and Breathwork to Channel Joy Amidst the Chaos. Now, we actually have this linked up in the show notes, so I highly recommend going right now and pre-ordering your copy because it launches December 19th. And with that pre-order, you actually get a ton of bonus videos that come along with this. So I highly recommend if you want to check out those videos on top of what you're going to learn within this book, go check out the link in our show notes. Now, her online teacher trainings have really set the standard for quality online certification since 2015, and she's had thousands of yoga teachers go through it. Brett's award-winning YouTube channel with over half a million subscribers and uplifted yoga podcast empowers you to actively design your life using yoga's ancient wisdom. Yoga enthusiasts love her courses on Kundalini Yoga, Prenatal Yoga, and Uplifted Yoga Academy. You can learn more about her at brettlarkin.com. Brett, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us. I know that you are a busy mom of two. I have a new book that is coming out and are just constantly, constantly in the flow of giving people this information about yoga and helping people feel better in their bodies. So I just really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. Well, I'm a huge fan of your work and so is my whole team. So happy to be here. So I kind of like to start at the beginning with people and, you know, Why yoga? What first drew you into this world of yoga-based movement? And, you know, then what ultimately kept you there? (laughs) It's interesting. I talk about this in chapter one of the book. Uh, It you would think that it would be, you know, spiritually motivated, but I'm actually just totally honest in this book. And what originally got me interested in yoga is I actually had a crush in college on a guy who was really (laughs) into meditation. And I couldn't get out of the friend zone with him. You know, I couldn't figure it out. I was uh you know, hyper competitive dancer. I had switched to Pilates at the time. I thought I was going to be a professional dancer at one point. And he kept suggesting I do yoga. And I just said, you know, why? Yoga's for wimps. I was just so confused. (laughs) But, you know, like wanting to get out of the friend zone, I was like, okay, I'll, I'll go to a class if it's like the most intense I can find. And that's what led me to 
uh, Bikram hot yoga, which uh, then I talk about is actually like the worst kind of yoga for someone with my uh, personality type. (laughs) (laughs) I have high pits of fire, which we can talk about and it's in a hot room. Uh, But that's actually how I started. So, you know, thanks for that question. Obviously, it, it flourished from there into something that uh, completely transformed my life. This guy was not, I don't think we ever even end up dating and and yoga became like the love story passion of my career and my life from that point forward. So. That's so funny. And I like <laughs> that you're super honest about it as well as to what like, drew you in. Nope, I was just trying to get a date. <laughs> <laughs> Quick interruption. Now, right before I am recording this, I actually took a drink of my water, which has my element in it because I am telling you, I have it every single day. I don't miss a day. It helps to feel like I'm really hydrating my body. I'm reaching for my water more often. I'm drinking more water and there's never a question if I'm getting enough water throughout my day. And I've struggled with this in the past. I was always the person who was like, oh my gosh, I never drink enough water. But now that I've added element in, it is no question. It helps me to feel better throughout the day. So rather than reaching for an afternoon coffee, I reach for a packet of Element. Raspberry is my favorite. However, they have a new chocolate medley that is to die for. It's incredible flavors. I love it with hot water. And it's like you're having this hot chocolate, whether it's in the middle of the day, in the morning, at night, it just tastes amazing. I use just like half a packet and do a little cup of hot water. I'm telling you, you got to try this. So if you have not yet, we're going to have that linked up in the show notes. That is drinkelement.com backslash optimal. With every purchase, you get a free sample pack so that you get to explore more flavors. And I'm telling you, if anything, just get that chocolate medley. You're going to thank me. But how, so how did it evolve? What, like, what was that transition of like, okay, let me dive deeper into this. And what's really evolved for your practice through the years. I described this moment and I, I'm wondering if you two also have had a moment like this, but I remember being in pigeon pose, which for people who don't know is it's an on the floor hip stretch. And the hyper competitive person that I was, I, you know, had thrust myself Jen into like this the deepest pigeon you could. And the teacher walked over and I was like, oh, she's gonna say how flexible I am and be so impressed. <laughs> and instead she said, Notice if you've pushed yourself too far in this stretch. If you've pushed yourself too far in this stretch, you probably pushed yourself too far in life too. And for me, that was one of these pinnacle moments, you know, when you play a highlight reel of your life, where for the first time I realized the voices in my head that were telling me to do more, stretch more, which we can talk about, you know, be better, you know, no pain, no gain, push myself that like maybe those voices weren't true, Mm. that maybe those voices weren't the real me. And so yoga gave me this gift of realizing that the inner dialogue that I was living in didn't have to be the story or the narrative that I chose to listen to. And I define this in the book, I call it the yoga of awareness. I think we're moving into a new era where instead of yoga just being poses, more and more people are understanding that yoga is a mindset we inhabit. It's a state of being. It's not pretzel poses. Uh, and so that moment was really like the thing that changed everything. And and then when I mean everything, I mean my dedication to the practice, my my decision to pursue teaching and getting the confidence to teach, which took a very, very long time. 
Mm. Um, to be able to speak and teach and then put it on YouTube. I mean, like this was a deck, like such a long journey and the ripple effect off the mat I was seeing at the same time, right? Not just the voices in my head, but I was like, wow, it changed how I interacted with people and what I chose to do and not do. Wow. I think that's so profound. And I love the the quote that I don't know if you remember exactly who that that instructor or that teacher was who came up to you and said that, but I literally started thinking of like, wow, that's a, a wisdom quote on the level of Yoda. It's like pushing too hard you are. <laughs> like you just <laughs> you just need to slow down and less is more. And so you talked a little bit about it just now, but talk about how people taking the principles from yoga, the things that they will learn in class or within their practice um, can even more so apply into their everyday life. It's such a great question. I think one of my missions with this book is really to move away from the idea of yoga as group fitness Mm. to something that's highly individualized, personalized. I don't know about you guys, but I get ads every day for personalized vitamins, personalized shampoo. And yet with yoga, we're still mostly following along. And I know I'm kind of like putting myself out of a job because I have this like big yoga YouTube channel or whatever and people are following along. And and I think that's great. Like that's that's wonderful. And there's thousands of books about that already, right? Like teaching a particular style or a particular method. What I'm trying to do is really help people figure out what can I craft like a mixologist or an apothecarian? Like how can I know which poses light me up inside that balance my personality and then also maybe help soothe me like be serve as an antidote to the type of day that i'm facing and to create something very very short so under this theme of less is more when i had my first child something you guys went through not too long ago but my father was dying of cancer at the same time my business was blowing up we moved there was it was i call it my rock bottom year And it was extremely humbling because I couldn't practice 90-minute yoga anymore. Mm. It was physically impossible. I was keeping my toddler from cliff diving off the couch. I was dealing with bedpans and insurance phone calls. It was the darkest, darkest hour. And it was humiliating to me to be in front of all these people on YouTube and social saying, you know, practice every day. And, you know, I felt like a fraud because it wasn't happening for me. And that's when I realized that it was time to go back to the drawing board. It was time to look at the history of like where these yoga poses really came from, like how we got these methods and styles and rules that are commonly known today, re-examine some of those things. And what I ended up discovering is that I could craft something that was short, that was, you know, 15, 20 minutes, some days only 10, that could center me as well as a longer class. Now, I'm not saying don't do longer classes. I'm just saying that if you pick the right poses for your personality type and do those, that those are just as potent as a much, much longer, like more generic group fitness experience. And that's what the book teaches you how to do step by step. And I actually was going to say how incredible it was that you were so, you open up the book so vulnerable, like in such a vulnerable place in, you know, saying what was happening and the reality of, well, crap, now I, I'm 
preaching this, but I'm actually living in this. So how do I start to blend it? And that's actually something I was, you know, kind of realizing as well myself. I had brought a new workout program that's super fun because it was stimulating me in a different way, but it took almost an hour or more to just set up and do all of it. And I was like, this is not sustainable. Sometimes I get to a workout after I put him to bed. I don't want an hour plus workout. <laughs> you know, I need something that's going to be, that's going to hit what I am specifically needing. And that's what you're saying for yoga. And that's what I kind of want to ask too. So what is yoga then? Like, are we doing yoga because we're trying to improve our flexibility and mobility? Are we doing yoga for the mental aspect? Like, what does it really mean? And and is this what you're helping people define? 100%. So chapter three, and I love that an analogy that you gave of, of how you can relate to that because I was in the same place. And again, I think it's important for listeners, like, let's acknowledge the seasons of life, yeah. right? Like Jen and I aren't saying we don't ever want to do an hour long, you know, fitness or yoga routine ever again. It's just like, there's moments in your life when you have someone dying, when there's a birth, when there's a traumatic event that you need to adapt. Like adapt is probably like the most overused word in this book because most people, if they don't know how to adapt, they just skip, mm. right? They just skip a day. Uh, so to, to come back to your original qu question, I, I think what we see or what I found, and this book has a lot of footnotes in, in chapter three, which is about the history of modern yoga. Like how did this all arrive to where we are today, is that when we look millennia ago, yoga was a spiritual practice. It was actually designed to disassociate from the body. It was designed for two groups of people, the equivalent of young boys kind of like going into religious life, right? So like eight to 15, and they're going to be the equivalent of priests in that culture. And then it was designed for elderly men. So basically a grandfather, when he was done contributing to his community, he would become what's called a sannyasa, which means he would go then wander in the woods to prepare for the next life. And if you look at these two groups of people, which are both male, they don't have any other priorities except yoga and spiritual enlightenment. It's literally their only job. They're not doing anything else. They're not in what's called the householder stage um, in the Vedic system of life, which is like what we are all in and probably most people listening are in. So those two sets of people were practicing a type of yoga that was designed to prepare you to unite with universal consciousness, to, to achieve a bliss state. We see this word samadhi as this state of ecstasy um, or to you know get ready for your next incarnation, your next life. And the focus was, you know, the body is annoying. It's pesky. You know, it has these, it has these sexual urges. It needs to eat. And this is where we see a lot of these depictions of these yogis like sitting on nails or mortification of the flesh or fasting, right? Like the body was seen as an obstacle to overcome. When did all that change? Well, it changed during the Industrial Revolution. So during the Industrial Revolution, which is like late 1700s to late 1800s, all of a sudden, people were moving from working in farms to working in factories. And so a huge interest in physical health reemerged because they no longer were having to plow fields and walk miles to get food. It became much more an urban lifestyle. And so we see calisthenics movement in Europe blowing up, right? Like gymnastics and common people taking more of an interest in these types of things. In India, people started getting really interest, interested in um, Indian martial arts. 
like young, young people as a way to be physically fit. So one man kind of saw what was happening. He saw that there was this sort of like fitness craze sweeping Europe. And he decided to blend that with yoga, which did have postures. The Hatha Yoga Pradipika, uh, which is, you know, maybe 400. I'm going to have to look up this date, guys. I'm hoping to set it. <laughs> the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, which is not as old as some of the Vedic texts, but we do see pictures of poses in that. Um, but there's not that many poses. <laughs> it's like, you know, 30 to 60 poses, nowhere near the number of poses we have today. And many of them are seated. Hmm. So all of a sudden, Krishnamacharya is this man's name. He decides, you know what? We're going to blend the spirituality of yoga with Indian martial arts, with, with this gymnastics that's sweeping Europe. And we're going to make yoga about health and well-being. So instead of it being about transcending the body, it's going to be actually about physical fitness and making the body better as something that's accessible to everyone, not just these two classes of that we talked about previously. So I know that was very long-winded, but uh, <laughs> that's kind of how we arrived at where we are today. It was a, it was a huge pivot. And so I, I talk about him in the book because it's, it's brilliant what he did. At the same time, when yoga came West, his teachings kind of morphed and changed. And as things morph and change in order for mass transmission, that's when things get generalized and sometimes simplified and sometimes codified for good reason, right? To be like to teach a method. And that's where we get these styles and schools that people are so attached to. Like I have a section of the book that calls the, the style is not the solution. I don't know if you guys get this question too, hmm. but. Most people, when they're interested in yoga, they ask me, like, what style should I do? They think that's the answer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and the reality is, like, all these styles have value, pending on your intention. Yeah. That's fascinating. And I think that's a great line right there, because it, it's the same way in a very, very different way in field where in physical therapy, there's a million different techniques that you can use to move someone's body or especially with manual techniques you can do hand manual techniques you can work on them with tools you can do dry needling and everyone asks like oh what's the best technique and the answer is yes or it depends <laughs> you know like that there's it always depends on the person it depends on what they're looking for and it depends on the expertise of the person doing the technique and, and similar to what you said like it's not about the specific school it's about your intention and what you're looking for and so through all that you have learned now and where you have come, like, where do you land on what your yoga practice means to you and, and how you use it to, to center yourself? One of the key things I'd love everyone to understand is that yoga was never meant to be understood outside of the context of Ayurveda. Uh, and, I'll, and this will tie back to how I practice, because how I practice is appropriate for my Ayurvedic mind-body type. Mm. For listeners who don't know, Ayurveda translates to life science, and it's a, really a galaxy of uh, holistic therapies. It's, it's very focused on nutrition, but the core principles are that we're all made up of three core elements, air, earth, and fire, with one of those elements being dominant. And these elements... Uh, in Sanskrit are called doshas. That's really interesting mm. because dosha literally translates, if we look at the Sanskrit, to that which can cause problems. Mm. Mm. Why? Right? It's because the element that you 
have the most of is the one that most easily skews out of balance. So I'll use myself as an example. I have high air and high fire. Like attracts like. So just like we talked about earlier, when it was time for me, 20, however many years ago, (laughs) to pick out a yoga class, as someone with high fire, what did I pick? Hot yoga, yeah, right? I was like, literally like, put me in fire. Like attracts like. So something that the book really tries to re-educate people on is that what we're attracted to, and I say this, the yoga style you're attracted to initially is probably not what you need to come into balance. And so my journey has very much been about that, transitioning from hot yoga, wanting to master all the difficult poses, seeing it like, you know, seeing the yoga asana, like a mountain that I'm climbing, right? Wanting to do more and more difficult things, wanting to have more and more difficult yoga choreography to impress my students, fancier sequences, better playlists, right? Like the list goes on. And the reality is that for someone like me who has high fire, I need cool. I need still. So one of the principles of Ayurveda that is so beautiful that we can just apply it to everything is cultivate the opposite, mm. right? By by putting the opposite. So so the person who who wants hot yoga, like the thing they really need is probably like restorative yoga where they're just completely still. Uh, and it's the the thing they'll resist the most. Yeah. So the challenge for them, like if you are addicted to doing 108 sun salutations, that is so awesome, but the challenge for you my guess is like based on your personality type, what would be more actually challenging for you would be to, you know, and I, and I say this, I say, indulge in what you want and then transition to what you need. That's like what responsible adults do. So like <laughs> indulge in, in some sun salutations. And I do this in my own practice to answer your question. So I indulge in what I want. I'm a sensation junkie. So usually that means I indulge in some really feel good, like big flowy movements. And then I transition to what I actually need, which is stillness yin poses right a lot of silence and space and this can be confronting for people because the style of yoga or the poses that you're avoiding that's where your medicine is and you will resist them because when you're then in those poses you're confronted with like all the emotion and all the crap in your life that you've been burying and trying to avoid yeah. So, um, so my practice now looks like that. I start with what I want and then I transition to what I need to actually balance me. That's so fascinating. And something that I, I know, you know, I've seen a lot of people gravitate toward. It's like, oh, well, this is easy for me. So I'm just going to do this and this feels good. And so I'm going to lean into this without really having that awareness of I probably need the opposite. So in your book, do you actually teach people how to find what's dominant within their body? Yes. So there is a quiz in chapter two, and that's one of the first things we do. So we figure out, you know, are you air, earth, or fire dominant? Remember, we have all three of these energies within us, so you're going to recognize all of them. But our unique genius really shines forth when these elements are in their correct quantities within us, right? Like when they're at a very uh, specific percentage point. Like let's just to be simple, like when I'm 50% fire, 25% air and 25% earth. It's like, that's my zone of genius. Like that's where the authentic me is coming through. That's where I'm creating. You know, people who have high fire are, are supposed to be leaders. Like that's part of your dharma. But what happens? Like when my fire gets to like 80%, <laughs> right? And then air is like 15 and then, you know, like the earth gets down. 
um, that's when I skew out of balance. Mm-hmm. So this is what in Ayurveda they call your prakriti and your vakriti, right? So now it's like I'm I'm operating from this sort of off kilter place where instead of being an ins- a, a inspiring leader, I'm being domineering. I'm bossing people around. Like I'm stressed about timelines. I'm impatient, right? So the one of the first things you do in the book, the book has a ton of quizzes. So many quizzes, but they're fun. They're short. I think they're all five questions. And so you'll figure out your dominant element. And then the first part of the book is a little bit like a self-help book, helping us understand what this yoga of awareness is, because you can apply it to everything, parenting, your relationships. And then the second part of the book is kind of like a build a bear format. So once you Mm. know that dominant element, we put together your 20 minute routine, Mm. uh, picking out poses. And I supply some of my favorites. And then there's quizzes that kind of guide you to what breathing techniques, because we haven't even touched on the breath, my goodness, but like which breathing techniques would really serve to balance you. So it's very guided in that sense while giving a lot of ideas and, you know, options for you to personalize it. That interactive nature and personalized nature, I think is so awesome uh, that you integrate that into the book a lot as someone myself who doesn't do as much pleasure reading as I should. That's a great way to keep me more engaged in in a book if there's there's more to do than just read, which (laughs) I know that I need to do more of in general. But I also know there's a chapter in your book um, that's called Stretch, Embrace, Less is More. So, and it kind of reminds me of that first story uh, that that you told. And honestly, something that we tell a lot of people where we say you really shouldn't be pushing into a stretch. You should find your breath and find that stretch in a way that that you can harmonize with your body and, and work with the stretch so that you're working together rather than working against yourself. So can we unpack that a little more? Like how do we embrace and use the concept of less is more to find optimal stretching? Anatomy is a limitation. I think you two would both agree with me on this and you you probably are experts on this beyond what I can understand, right? Like the anatomy of your hip socket, um, like how your femur and the greater trochanter like fit into your acetabulum is going to affect whether you can ever sit cross-legged on the floor with your knees like on the ground. Mm-hmm. That is something that potentially depending on your skeleton will never change. So I think we hear a lot of well-intending yoga instructors saying, you know, just try harder, you know, stretch deeper, you'll get there. And the reality is you probably won't. And luckily it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Like when you realize anatomy is a limitation, it actually becomes a liberation <laughs> because yeah. instead of beating yourself up, you you actually honor your unique skeletal structure. Variability in joints is real. I mean, that's why at the Bolshoi Ballet in Russia, they don't accept people based on talent alone. They do x-rays. It doesn't matter <laughs> how talented a ballerina you are. <laughs> wow. If you don't have a particular type of skeleton, like you're never going to be able to dance the most difficult sections of Swan Lake. I like sharing that example because, I mean, this is real. So I think educating our students, and I'm sure, you know, and this is what I love about your work as well, is really letting people know, you know, there's, and I talk about this in the book, the difference between what I call therapeutic pain, which is pain you can breathe into, you know, Mm -hmm. and maybe that's, um, you know, fascial restriction, or maybe that's muscle tightness, or, you know, maybe that's something that you can breathe into and soften as opposed to sharpshooting pain, which means we always want to back off. Mm. Healthy flexibility is not 
the things we see associated with yoga, like people doing backbends on top of each other or the splits. Uh, I can't fold my body perfectly in half. Luckily, you know, that that has nothing to do with with yoga or my sense of personal fulfillment or happiness now. I mean, these are things that that I learned over a long time. But do you guys agree with what I'm sharing here? A hundred percent. I mean, and that's where I think a lot of people, they get wrong with yoga. If they haven't really done it or embraced it yet, it is this, when you look from an outside and especially in our Western culture, it is just, oh, I'm supposed to be stretching the most and even when I started the first time, it is a little bit more ego driven, kind of like what you said when you were in pigeon and and you're like, I'm going to get the biggest compliment that was always going through my head. When I first started yoga, I was like, well, I was a gymnast, so I could do all of this. And then I actually started to learn a little bit more about the body. And I completely changed what I did within a yoga practice. And all of a sudden things were hard. (laughs) It was challenging. I wasn't just pushing and trying to stretch as far as possible. And it blew my mind actually walking out of a yoga class and having a completely different experience in the same kind of environment. And I I really think that like that's what you're helping to cultivate here, (laughs) which is, you know, what is your body normally feel like it wants to gravitate toward and where do you actually need to lean into a little bit more and with an understanding of like the different postures, the different breath work, the different things that are going to suit you and your body best. Like I think that is incredible. Yeah, that's what I love about Ayurveda because in the move section, which is the chapter that's more about like the moving postures, things people originally think of when they think of yoga, right? Like triangles and and warrior twos and, and sun salutations and those kinds of things. That Ayurvedic principle of cultivate the opposite is still true. So in addition to knowing your energetic blueprint, which we figure out early, I kind of pose the question and I love you're doing it too. It's like, which is your natural tendency? Mm-hmm. Are do, are you a sensation junkie? Do you love to feel your muscles, stre- you know, stretch and and lean into that like range of motion that's like feels so good? Or are you more of a what I call like a, a stiffy, like picture like a young Arnold Schwarzenegger is like an extreme example, but someone who's more uh, focused on strength and has that like no pain, no gain mindset. And whatever camp you're in, it doesn't matter. The goal of yoga, yoga's union, like we want to meet in the middle, right? So if you're someone who's hypermobile, sure, do what I do. I feel into that lizard stretch or that lunge and I just let it be loosey-goosey. I'm like, eh, right? Like my sensation junkie self just gets to have a moment. And then I become responsible. I engage muscularly, right? Because if you're on that end of the spectrum, cultivate the opposite according to Ayurveda, right? I need to focus on strength. And, and why all yogis need to focus on strength and should all also be in your community, Jen. Like That's why I, I love everything you offer because it is more um, focused on those targeted movements that they need for stability, right? While someone who has that no pain, no gain, they're muscling into to postures like our, like our Arnold example, right? They need, they need the flow. They mm-hmm. need the, the loosey-goosey, right? So it's not like one is right and one is wrong it's like the goal is awareness Mm -hmm. and and this is like what an advanced yoga practice is if i can transmit one thing through this podcast or the book it's like advanced yoga is not harder poses advanced yoga is exactly what we're talking about here right now it is having the awareness the Mm -hmm. mental aptitude to actually pick and choose what is challenging for me and how to then also best tailor that to fit your day. Yeah. 
I think building that awareness for people is the most challenging, but yes. the most <laughs> rewarding thing that we can do as educators, but also for for that person on the other side. Like once you start to develop that awareness that you didn't know you you may not have had prior to that, it gives you so much more empowerment over the way you feel in your body and understanding on what you need to do in order to feel something different. Um, and, and I think that is just so empowering. I, I kind of want to tap into meditation quick because I know when a lot of people think yoga. You know, there's this overarching, you know, umbrella of like, oh, there, it's also a meditative practice or it incorporates mindset and mindfulness a lot. Can you kind of dice and, and dive in a little more to how those merge yoga and meditation? Yes. Well, it's, it's great because when we were talking earlier about yoga originally being to transcend the body, the asana that they were doing, the asana means poses uh, or seat is, act, seat is actually the Sanskrit translation, but here in the West, we use it to refer to the poses. Um, yogis only did poses so that they could then sit to meditate. <laughs> mm. um, my, my son's kindergarten teacher uses this same same technique. She has all the kindergartners when they get in, do the wiggles, right? Mm-hmm. Shake it out, shake it out. She has them run around and then they sit and they do their first little assignment, right? The ancient yogis figured this out as well. They were like, wow, if we, if we move our bodies, if we contort our bodies, if we you know, do some twists and stretches and things, I'm then able to sit in meditation and you know, achieve enlightenment or kind of transcend the body for longer periods of time, right? If I indulge my body with some some yoga first, what we call here yoga uh, first, then I can sit and meditate for longer. So I think it's really important that the whole physical yoga practice was a means to an end until Krishnamacharya then changed everything, right? Repositioned it uh, and kind of breathed new life into into what yoga is. Meditation is so misunderstood, I think. Uh, Mm. People think it's emptying their mind or that you can be bad at it. Uh, The way I talk about it in the book, in the meditation chapter, is that meditation is really just a willingness to witness your thoughts. So it's going back to that idea of you are not your thoughts, you are the observer, you are the witness. This is probably things many people have heard several times. But meditation is that, act of being willing to witness what's in there. And for those of us that are in the householder phase of life, like that could be a lot of stuff. One of my favorite techniques um, is to actually label my thoughts as they come up. So when I first sit down to meditate, uh, you know, my mind is rushing and I just kind of like slotting ideas into a file folder. I'll just think, oh, to-do list item, right? Uh, Worry excitement, right? Like I just start labeling the thoughts into broad categories. And that's a great technique I love to give people because doing that right away shifts you away from being those thoughts. It's like you are the sky and the thoughts are the passing clouds. Uh, Another really important component in terms of meditation is that it helps to do some movement first Mm. and it helps to do breath work first. To just sit and then try to observe your thoughts is very challenging. So I really... Um, invite people to do pranayama. It could just be a minute, three minutes of breath work before you sit. It'll just make the entire meditative experience so much smoother. Um, And I kind of help you pick which breath technique to choose based on your dominant element and a a couple other factors in the quiz. You'll kind of have your go-to. But tell me what more specific uh, questions you, you have 
I think, you know, the other key thing that I see missing in a lot of the meditation taught today is, is that it really just is about getting people's energy up or, you know, out of their body or kind of feeling high or feeling spacey. I don't know if you've heard this, but so many of my students tell me they feel spacey in meditation. Mm. And I mean, guess who's attracted to meditation? Our air group of people, (laughs) (laughs) the people with high air. They're like, woohoo, let's meditate and get high. Um, But they're the last people who need that. They need more grounding. So a core component of the framework I offer for the meditation is also a focus on regrounding your energy. Because the first two groups of people we talked about earlier in the episode, you know, they were meditating for spiritual enlightenment, transcending the body. That was the goal. For us, that's not the goal. Our goal is to connect with something bigger than ourselves and then bring that universal divine intelligence down, down through our body so that we can then show up in our life as the most caring mom or business partner or uh, friend that you can be, right? We want to embody that wisdom. So I also teach a lot of regrounding techniques because otherwise meditation is kind of only doing half of what we need as a modern person. And how often do you think, you know, how long should we be doing this meditation? Because I know you say, okay, you can find the yoga poses that are necessary for you, right? That go along with the breath work and and you can spend anywhere from 10 to 20 minutes and get really focused on what you need. Does that include the meditation or is that in addition? Great question. I love the I love the details. Yeah, so the last chapter of the book kind of teaches you how to be an apothecarian. Once you've designed your 20-minute sequence, I say, "Okay, now the good news is this is completely modular, right? Everything except for one section is modular, meaning you can just do it on your own." So do it on its own. So maybe I just want to do the stretch segment and that's it because I'm super overwhelmed and I'm tired and my baby didn't sleep and that's all I have time for today, right? Maybe the house is clean. Uh, you know, I have luxurious like three hours of unstructured time ahead of me. I show you how you can expand your personal ritual to be mm-hmm. 60 minutes. Let's say you woke up late, you have a flight to catch and you have to give a big talk. I teach you how to just do like the breath segment and maybe the meditation segment in 10 minutes, right? So everything is is like expandable and contractible. I mean, I know you can't see my hands, <laughs> people listening, but I'm like waving them in. And so the, the last skill of the book is kind of teaching you like, how do you whip up the, the yogic breathwork meditative cocktail that's exactly what you need based on what's going on in your day and how much time you have to practice. And to answer your question, Jen, what I teach is to do meditation at the end of that 20-minute ritual. So again, it might end up being a little bit more like 25 minutes, 30. Uh, With the meditation, it's even modular. It's like you can do all three steps. You can just do the first step, which is just observing your thoughts, which has huge value, and observing your breath which has huge value, right? Yeah. So it's like everything is very uh, mix and match and, and choosable. Um, but the other thing you can do, and I've done this in periods of stress in my own life, is I do my physical practice in the morning, 15, 20 minutes, and then I meditate at night, mm. right? A little bit before bed. So you can also kind of split them uh, if that makes sense for you. I, th- I love it. And I love how it's so modular and and specific to the person who's mm-hmm. going to be going through and figuring out what works best for them and being able to adapt it to what they need that day, the amount of time they have that day. Um, I just think that's so great. And, and one of my final questions is like, is yoga for everybody? Should everyone be practicing this in some way, shape or form? Or for those people out there that are just like, you know, 
I'm listening to this podcast, but I never have really had a huge interest in yoga. Like, what can that person get out of reading your book? I think the yoga of awareness should be interesting to everybody (laughs) (laughs) because having an extra layer of awareness on your life, one of the key principles is that we talk about in the book is Svadhyaya, self-awareness. And I think that's what we're all talking about, right? Like in your work as well, it's really interesting, I think everywhere, but especially in the West, how much we've abdicated our health, right? It's like, doctor, tell me what to do, or health professional, tell me what to do, or YouTube video, tell me what to do, or Google, tell me what to do. And all of that has value. I'm not saying not to do that. I'm just saying, what if we also cultivated the skill and the muscle that's been proven throughout millennia to work of knowing our own energetic blueprint, of knowing, you know, wh- where do we tend to skew out of balance, like that d- dosha, the fault line, right? H- how can I cultivate the opposite in my own life to bring myself more into balance? I think something to end on is to let people know that in the book, in addition to, you know, this kind of build a bear of creating your own little ritual, I offer, I offer over a dozen what I call yoga habits. And these are things you can do on days that you don't make it to a mat. Because I'm, I'm straight up. I'm honest. Like there's days I don't make it to a mat. I have two tiny kids. I have a lock, you know. And so it's like, how can I practice yoga if that's the situation or if I'm bedridden with an injury? And believe it or not, I've come up with a lot of ways, again, going back, to Vedic texts, looking at the history, there's so many gems of just little shifts, little things you can do while while you're waiting for the tea to boil, while you're standing in line. I have a lot about doing yoga in a car, if you guys can believe it. Um, The garage Mm -hmm. is one of my favorite places to to do breath work. So even if someone got this book and and was like, I'm not going to step on a mat ever, they're going to get so much out of it still because of the habits that are interwoven and I think the awareness that it can offer them. So Yoga, the way we see it displayed on Instagram and in popular culture, no, I don't think that is for everyone. What we're talking about here, knowing yourself, taking responsibility for your well-being, understanding your energetic blueprint, trying to step into your authenticity, that I think everyone should be interested in or I'd encourage them to be. And I think that's what yoga really is. That is, I love that we're ending here because this is... That is such a great piece that I hope people really take in. Awareness is really everything. It's something we talk about with almost every person that we have. Our own pod, like our own podcasts are all about how do you build that own awareness? Because if you're going to go to the doctor and you're going to ask the questions, you get more, the more awareness you have within your body, the more you get to self-advocate and understand what questions to ask better, understand how to help your health rather than just being told what to do. So I, I just... I think this is going to be so beneficial for so many people. And of course, we're going to have it linked up below because I know at this time people can pre-order, correct? And there's some other stuff that comes along with that. Yes. If you pre-order the book, which I believe the ebook is $11, you get a free $197 personalize your practice course, which is videos walking you through everything we've talked mm-hmm. about. So I'll let everyone do the math on that. But you know, the book, the book world is crazy and pre-orders mean so much. So that's a little gift for anyone who wants to pre-order. And you know, thank you both so much for, for all your work and, and for taking the time. It's, it's always such a joy to connect with you both. Yes, of course. Excited Absolutely. for what you're doing. And I know it's going to help so many people. Thanks so much for listening. And I don't know about you, but I have never learned so much or heard so much of the history 
behind yoga in just that one short podcast. So if anybody out there had any interest, please go check out the book. It's down in the show notes, Yoga Life, Habits, Poses, and Breathwork to Channel Joy Amidst the Chaos, all by Brett Larkin. She is a wealth of knowledge, and so I hope you all go and get that book pre-ordered. Also, please share this out with anybody who you might think will benefit from this information. Consider leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcasting platform, and of course, we will see you next time.